Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is now the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. Yours truly and Andrew are members dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith as members of the Catholic Medical Association. And it should be noted that the views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of the co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. We hope that you enjoy what we do and will let your friends know about us. Tonight, our special guest will be Dr. Tom Zabiga. He is a neurologist who's going to help us understand the similarities and differences between palliative care and hospice care, they've been in the media lately, and dangers that may be lurking in them. And in the last segment, something for the first time, we're going to be interviewing a murderer. But first, let's turn to some recent medical news. And I found this fascinating because it speaks to a big need in society. And that is right now, many newly minted physicians are coming out of med school with enormous debt. Yeah, that's the truth. I can attest to that one. Uh, how would you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. You're asking for <laughs> Got it. Well, the average uh, medical student graduates with, drumroll, $192,000 in debt. Wow, that, that seems light to me, actually. Well, and that, I've talked to. and that doesn't include residency. So if they don't make enough money in residency to cover costs, some might take out loans there. But yes, I've heard many with over $200,000 in debt. And that supposedly is driving more and more physicians to seek specialties where they can make more money. Yeah, I know for just myself, uh, maybe too much information here, but I I was an in-state student, which is cheaper, and I went to Michigan State. This is not... A state school. It's a state school. This is not an extremely expensive private school. And my my student debt was over 280000 just for med school. <sighs> and, you know, that's a big hole that you've got to find a way to dig out of. My parents are physicians, and they graduated in the late 80s, and they their tuition was like maybe $5,000 a year. You know, maybe they graduated with $20,000, which is still a lot of money, but it's literally a tenth, one generation later, a tenth of the debt that I had to start practice with. A tenth of the debt. I got a scholarship from the Army that was worth, in the second half of the 80s, I graduated in 90, that was worth almost exactly $100,000 yeah, wow. for, the, for the four years. So, you know, if you bring that forward now, yeah, that's probably well over $200,000 worth. Well, the news here is that on August 16th, the New York University School of Medicine announced that it would be tuition-free to everybody they accept, regardless of need. That's pretty good. That's good. Regardless of need and regardless of merit. There are some schools that offer uh, full scholarships to some of their students, full tuition. Uh, UCLA has been doing that. Uh, and at New York University, this will cover $55,000 a year, not only for its 93 first-year students, but for everybody else who is there. So the second, third, and fourth-year students this year are getting free tuition that they didn't expect. Man, that's like winning the lottery. I, th <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, it's being funded by the founder of uh, Home Depot, uh, Mr. Uh, Langone, L-A-N-G-O-N-E. And... Uh, you know, that sounds like a great deal. It's one of those things, too, where you had mentioned folks choosing to go into specialties more than primary care. It's a, it's a real thing. You know, we've, we've found that most, I, I think the statistics are over 60% of people are choosing a subspecialty. Even folks that go into internal medicine, 60% are going on to subspecialize. For the higher income. For the higher income because you, you have to look at the student debt, and there are some specialties where, you know, the pay for a physician is going to be literally twice as much or more. And so in trying to even that out, it'd be nice to take away this financial incentive, hopefully help the, the lack of primary care doctors we have. And in the article, they say they want to especially help pediatricians because the four lowest paying specialties are all pediatric subspecialties, which make about one third of the highest paying specialty, which was neurosurgery, at least in this one survey. 
the dean of the med school said that they wanted to get students from all walks of life, not just those who are affluent in medical schools. And I heartily agree with that. Now, the second bit of news is also related to New York University School of Medicine. When I was at the Vatican in late April, I heard members of uh, certain medical schools, I think it was the dean of a couple different med schools, one of them was Duke, which is on this list with NYU, and that is making medical school three years instead of four. That's intriguing. It, it is intriguing, and uh, I looked at what the um, program would look like over three years, and I can see that it it would work. There's so much overlap between what we learn in college and basic sciences that I see ways that it could be done. And plus, for most medical students, fourth year, there's very little that's required. You're mostly doing audition rotations to try to get into the specialty of your choice. And something that NYU does, I think other schools do, is if you go into this three-year program, you get preferential admittance and often early admittance if you meet certain benchmarks into any of their residency programs. Wow, see, that's a really good deal. I think streamlining the process would really help the students a lot because every level, there's a huge amount of angst and stress and and time and money spent on trying to get to the next level of your education from getting into medical school, passing each of these major tests, getting into the residency of your choice. If they can kind of put together a package deal and you know where you want to go, I think that would be awesome. So there are more and more medical schools. There's about um, oh, 15 on this list right now, including Ohio State University, Duke University, a couple schools in uh, Wisconsin, and elsewhere. So that's my news for the day. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. And now we're over to Andrew with his patented preventive healthcare tip of the day. All right. Today we have got one today that I'd like to try and unpack a little bit. This was from October of 2016, where they recommend providing interventions during pregnancy and after birth to support breastfeeding. Yay! It's a pretty <laughs> pretty uh, common thing. Why do we even need a recommendation for that? Um, but it's I think become less popular, or is it back on the upswing? Did it go up and down in the it's past It's very decades? interesting, and it, it's very population-dependent. Um, in talking, especially to, to older physicians who have been doing this for a long time, over the last maybe 30 years, it used to be that, you know, affluent or rich people tried to give their kids formula because they thought it was better, and poor people breastfed. <laughs> Today, it's pretty much the opposite. Wow. Uh, there's a lot of folks, I- immigrant-type folks that I've gotten to care for, indigent people, and they think the formula is the good stuff. Oh that's my what goodness. they want. And a lot of times it's provided for free, so they think that's the best way to go. It's, it's the middle and upper class people that really are preferentially breastfeeding today. Although, according to the Leche League and other recommendations, you know, their, their goal is to try and increase breastfeeding because currently um, there's really only about 50 to 60 percent of people who get breast milk through the first six months of life. And that's lower than they'd like. They'd like 100%, but they're shooting for 82% by 2022. That's one of their benchmarks that they're trying to do. And so I've got kind of a, a few things, top three things that I think people would like to, to know about this. First thing is the actual recommendation is for breast milk only, no other foods or, or formula if, if possible, for the first six months of life. And then the second six months until they turn one, you start adding in solid foods, but you continue breastfeeding through a year. Some people can continue going longer if, if that's their preference, but at least for the first year, we think that's really helpful. Because? Well, you know, it does a lot of things, uh, maybe not quite as much as s- some people would suggest that it does, but we do have some pretty good data suggesting that it does provide optimal nutrition for the baby. That's how God designed it, so that makes sense. We do believe that it increases and helps the GI functioning of the child. The child gets benefit from maternal antibodies. If mother saw influenza and has antibodies against a strain of influenza and they're breastfeeding, the child will have some protection against the strain of that virus. This is, as opposed to antibiotics, I've had Many women feel that the breast milk had antibiotic effects where it would kill bacteria. Oh. That's, that's not quite accurate, but uh, it does give the baby immunity to things that mom is immune to, especially for the first three months when the baby doesn't really have much of an immune system of its own. 
Lastly, it also leads to psychological well-being, helping both mom and the baby with bonding. And so sure. it's, it is a nice thing to, to promote, although there's a lot of pitfalls. And so problems that are common, we see difficulty with breast milk supply, sometimes transferring from the breast to the baby. Sometimes the anatomy of the baby with a tongue tie could be a potential problem. There can also be infections and even sometimes pain for mom with vasoconstriction while nursing. And so the breastfeeding support is hopefully to identify women while they're pregnant, talk to them about what to expect, and then afterwards follow through with them either with a lactation consultant or their physician to address these problems as they come up. One of the things that I learned quickly in caring for newborns is that something so natural as breastfeeding, you'd think it, it would come naturally. In reality, it's a huge struggle for the vast majority of people at the beginning, and then it gets better. Um, well, that's good to know. Yeah, it, a lot of people go in and think, you know, I'm broken, the baby's broken, this is not worried. But in reality, it's very normal for it to be difficult at the beginning, and it gets better later. And so I, I do think breastfeeding is a great thing. We should support it. But I, I also want to give a shout-out and kind of recognition to a lot of the women out there who can't breastfeed for one reason or another. Uh, I think, unfortunately, there's been a lot of stigma placed on these women um, because they're not breastfeeding. And I, I get to care for a lot of these folks, and I think they're doing a great job. And so when you can breastfeed, I think that's great. But when it doesn't work out, you got to make sure baby stays fed. Thank you, Andrew. <coughs> Breast milk, best for baby, first 6 to 12 months of life. And now, before our break, the medical trivia question of the day. And we have a three-part trivia question today. And the category is physician marriages. What are your physicians up to? According to a 2013 publication in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, number one, if you have 100 physicians who are married, how many of those 100 are married to other physicians? Oh, good question. <clears throat> Second one, if you have 100 married physicians, how many of them are married to other people who are medical professionals, which includes physicians? And finally, what percentage of physician spouses work outside the home, both men and women who are spouses of physician? You'll have to stay tuned for the end of the show to get the answer. But after this break, we'll be back with our special guest. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to our second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. Today joining us is Dr. Tom Zabiega. Tom grew up both in Poland and the United States. He graduated from medical school at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine and did a residency in neurology in the University of Chicago Hospitals. He's been active in the Catholic Medical Association. He and his wife have five living children between the ages of two and 11. He resides in Bolingbrook, Illinois, and works in the southern Chicago suburbs. Tom, welcome to Dr. Doctor. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Well, Tom's going to help us plumb the, the depths and the meaning of palliative care and hospice care. And right now, there's a bill uh, in the Senate. It's already passed the House called the Palliative Care Hospice Education and Training Act, or PECHITA. Tom, why is the U.S. Congress so interested in palliative and hospice care now? I think they have good intentions. They're trying to, you know, help people who have, uh, who are end of life, who are suffering from pain and other, you know, uh, suffering from different uh, symptoms that they, that should be relieved. But I, unfortunately, I think like the thing uh, goes, you know, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And unfortunately, I think there's a lobbying push uh, by the, the same people who would love to have euthanasia and um, physicians to suicide legalized, who are sort of pushing for this bill because this bill for, uh, supporting, you know, education and palliative care and, and hospice would basically be, be, be uh, allowing healthcare workers and others to be educated in a sort of uh, palliative care which which would would lead them toward that that uh, assisted suicide or, or euthanasia, uh, to, to supporting those type of measures, and I think that's where the the problem lies with this with this uh, bill. So, Tom, one of the things that I think our our listeners would appreciate would be kind of even just defining palliative care and hospice, because to me those those sound like positive words, whereas we all 
would, would find ourselves against killing patients that happens in euthanasia or even giving them medicines in a physician-assisted suicide so they can kill themselves. Are, are hospice and palliative care, do, do those overlap some places? Well, I, I think the idea is, is, is very admirable and very good. If, and actually, I like the definition that was placed in the bill, in the Senate bill. Now, read it just so shortly, to summarize it. It's very well written. It says, palliative care is an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary patient-family-centered health care for people with serious illnesses. Palliative care is appropriate at any age and at any stage in a serious illness and can be provided together with curative treatment. Palliative care is not dependent on a life-limiting prognosis and makes you help an individual recover from illness uh, by relieving uh, symptoms such as pain, anxiety, or loss of appetite. And then it defines hospice as palliative care for patients in the last year of life. So in, in definition, it, 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 it makes very much sense. The problem is that the, the bill is about educating, educating uh, or helping people uh, be educated so that they can uh, practice palliative care uh, in a way that is really not according to the definition, because as uh, statistics show, uh, the majority of actually current uh, providers of palliative care, the ones who would be training everybody else, actually support measures such as uh, sedating someone completely at the end of life, and basically, uh, in half more than half of them would support actually not even providing them hydration, just sedating them to the point that they would basically die. Uh, completely uh, sedated, which is actually euthanasia. And so we want to cover that people will be more deeply a little later. I want to yes. lay the groundwork uh, better yes. for our listeners first. Those are incredibly important points to make. Right. So to simplify or to clarify for our listeners, palliative care is reducing symptoms of pain, anxiety, loss of appetite at any time in mm-hmm. life. And when we're doing that at the end of life, it's called hospice care. Yes. Great. So we've got sounds like common sense medicine to me. And and anybody who takes care of patients should be able to palliate uh, them or reduce their pain. Can you give some examples of patients you have seen in these situations and how you were able to to help provide any of that type of care? Right. So uh, a very clear example of a palliative care patient would be a patient I have, for example, with Parkinson's, and she also has pretty severe osteoarthritis and has had some fractures in her legs, so she's in a lot of pain. So basically, you know, the, she also, has, uh, she, you know, she, she needs uh, pain care and she needs uh, help with uh, trying to help her ambulate better and, and uh, you know, she, uh, people with Parkinson's have problems with depression, anxiety, so you try to, to treat their, their problems, the things that are causing them suffering, uh, and trying to relieve them. Uh, while they continue being treated for their underlying disorders so that they can live many more years. The example of a hospice care patient with sort of a very uh, ideal patient is the late Senator McCain, who, you know, he had uh, end-stage brain cancer. He tried his best to treat it with, uh, with, uh, with surgery and, and, other, and radiation therapy and whatever treatments they provide for him. But at the end, he was basically saying, you know, I, I, I don't want any more of these measures taken. And that sort of patient is an ideal patient for hospice care, uh, where they're, they're then provided the, the, the necessary just comfort care uh, at the, in the last, uh, you know, days or weeks of their life. So one of the differences between palliative care and hospice would have to do with how long the patient's expected to live. Is that right? Yes. And whether they have a really end-stage disease or whether they have basically a disabling disease, but we don't know for sure, you know, how long they will live with that. Are palliative care and hospice care only given in a hospital setting? No, actually, probably the best way to provide that is at, at home. Um, uh, so I think both palliative care and hospice care uh, can be best provided, I think, at home. Are there nurses who are specifically trained in palliative and hospice care? Uh, yes, there are, and, and oftentimes it's the, the hospice care is oftentimes, uh, and the palliative care during times, is, is really administered uh, more by the, the nurses with, with the doctors only sort of overseeing 
things. And is there an advantage to having nurses involved versus what um, a motivated family member can do for both hospice and palliative care? Well, I, I think it, it all depends. I think uh, many of the things that occur uh, uh, that, that are done in palliative and hospice care can be learned by family members or can be taught to family members. But I, th- I think it's sort of like, you know, um, like any other, uh, if someone may want to go to a mechanic to get everything done for them, but other people may change their own oil or change their own tires. So it's the same idea here. I think nurses are very skilled and they can do, uh, you know, uh, provide the care, but sometimes uh, some patients may feel comfortable being able to to provide injections or, you know, uh, learn how to uh, how to use a uh, 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 how to feed someone through a feeding tube or you know provide care for uh, for wounds and other things. So it all depends, I think, on 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 what people are, are expecting. Do you know if there is a shortage? of palliative care and hospice care right now? I don't know about that. I, I, I don't think so, but I don't uh, personally know whether there is a shortage uh, and whether there's shortages in certain areas of the country versus others. Well, which there's brings, a shortage of nurses in general, so yes. <laughs> maybe there is. <laughs> which brings us back to the original question of why do we need this bill now uh, um, in the United States, this Senate Bill 693? Well, I, I think the—I I don't know why we need it, because I think uh, the idea behind this bill is to, again, train people to be palliative care educators, providers, uh, you know, increasing awareness of palliative care, increasing research into palliative care. The problem is, again, the definition of palliative care. If the palliative care is what the definition of the bill says, then that would be great. But unfortunately, in practice, uh, there's there's very little room between palliative care and hospice in regards to how patients are you know chosen into that area. So oftentimes you see the same patients who are basically end of life. Cho- is the concepts are palliative care or hospice, and they're sort of lumped together. And the only difference is well maybe this patient won't die within the year that hospice would would expect them to die. But you know it, it basically. They look at people who are end of life, not necessarily people who are suffering who may still live, you know, many, many more years, but just need better pain control, better control of their you know, nausea and 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 uh, and other and appetite, and have, maybe they have sleep problems that need to be addressed. So, you, you, so uh, Tom, you know, one of the things that I was thinking as as we're talking here too, is that maybe part of the difference between palliative care and hospice in practice is how patients are treated differently because palliative care sounds like common sense medicine and then hospice would be for as folks are getting closer to death but do you think those programs are administered differently for patients um, with uh, in regard to pain control especially well uh, yes well, one thing is interesting is is um you know, my my father had actually died in hospice care uh, last year, and uh, he only had a few days to live. But it was interesting that if if at at the stage that we had to make decisions, if the, he was put on hospice at home, for example, they would provide a hospice hospital bed. They would provide everything for him uh, for free, basically uh, paid through I think Medicare. But if if he chose you know, home health or some sort of more palliative care type situation, then it wouldn't be paid for. So oftentimes people are pushed towards that end-of-life decision uh, with with what is provided for them. So you would think that that the same type of care would be provided in both situations. But oftentimes you see people being pushed towards hospice, and then the things are provided in hospice that are basically meant mostly not to relieve suffering, but to sort of make the make death come quicker than than naturally you would. And that that's something that we couldn't really support as Catholics. Our our goal always would be to let death come naturally but just help the person who's suffering. And I think right yes. now <coughs> we'll take our break and then enter in to this deeper conversation about some of the realities, the dark realities of what is going on after the break. You're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. We'll be back with Dr. Tom Zabiega in a few minutes.
This is Dr. Doctor returning to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and today we are discussing hospice and palliative care with Dr. Tom Zabiga. Zabiega. Zabiega, I'm sorry, <laughs> from, from Chicago. And, and I wanted to dive right in to information kind of about opioid use, especially in, in hospice and palliative care. You know, one of the things that I've seen a little bit on rounds is it seems as though when people move to hospice, almost everything except the opioids are taken away. And, you know, as Catholics, we, we, have, a, we have a strong preference for, for meeting death in a conscious state. Is, is that a concern, Tom? Do you see that in, in your practice? It, it's a big concern, and and you know I, I'll give an example. Um, I had a patient who had a bleed in the brain, and it was a very good hospice uh, candidate, but she had absolutely no suffering whatsoever. She had no pain. I mean, she had maybe some other types of suffering, but basically no pain. And the next day I come in, and she's on eight milligrams of morphine an hour, which means she was getting a hundred, almost a hundred milligrams of of morphine a day, which would basically uh, put you know, a horse to sleep. I mean, it would put anybody to sleep. And, and I wonder why. She, was, she didn't need to be on that opiate at all. So it is like, and, and everyone is put in the same sort of category. Everyone is given, you know, okay, they're on hospice, let's just put them on, uh, on a high dose of morphine and let them, you know, not suffer, where instead of looking at each person individually. And I can give an example of my own father, who every time, you know, he was dying, he, he had some discomfort, and I would say, okay, his discomfort, you know, if you want to give him some, uh, you know, morphine, that's fine, you know, a small d- uh, amount. But every time he f- he even twitched his face, you know, he was somewhat uh, unconscious, they wanted to give him morphine. I'm like, why? It, 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 so, so yes, it, you see it on, always. It's like morphine, you know, where other, uh, other opiates are just given, uh, uh, you know. And, and actually, the interesting thing is you don't know if those opiates are really relieving that suffering all the time because, for example, when I get morphine, I ha- I ha- when I had morphine after my surgery, I had so much nausea. I was wondering, what if I got it when at the end of my life? I'd probably be more miserable than if I if I was in pain. So well, so, yeah. And Tom, you know, one of the things you brought up at the very beginning of the interview was this idea of palliative sedation. Can you explain that mm-hmm. for our listeners and how how that would differ from good hospice care? Right. So. In in the in the study, they, is, is about two thirds of U.S. hospice and palliative physicians prescribe deliberate sedation to unconsciousness until death, which is what palliative sedation is, basically uh, making a person unconscious until they die. So, so this is euthanasia. Well, yeah, it is euthanasia, especially since half of them believe that they don't have to provide hydration or, or you know, uh, to that patient, so the patient basically dies very quickly, being completely sedated and, and, and not re- receiving any even water uh, uh, at the same time. So yes, it is euthanasia. So that's, that's a stunning statistic. <clears throat> Two-thirds of physicians involved in hospice and palliative care have done this to patients. As a future potential palliative or hospice care patient, that worries me. Does yes, it worry you? it worries me too. <laughs> yes. And, and I think that, that kind of highlights some of the reasons why, why people like myself have been a little bit skeptical about this bill going through Congress. Do you, who do you see as the biggest people advocating for this bill? Well, I think there are certain organizations uh, such as uh, what previously used to be called the Hamlock Society, which is now called Compassion Choices, which is an organization uh, with a mission to legalize assisted suicide and basically euthanasia. And I think the idea is that, you know, uh, uh, our society, American society, is, tends to be a little bit more conservative, than, let's say, in Europe and Belgium and Holland, where euthanasia is legal. And so they think, okay, let's pass these little, this bill through, which sounds very nice, you know, uh, the, the, it passed the House and all the, you know, uh, many conservative members voted. And so if we pass that, you know, we educate the, the, the people involved with hospice and palliative care to basically provide euthanasia, and therefore we will slowly but surely get American society to support euthanasia and and assisted and physician assisted suicide. Well, and it sounds like, it, to some extent, their patients are being euthanized in America right now in my town in yep. your town, 
and we're going to try and put these people in charge of training the next generation of doctors, nurses, patients, patients' families at what a good death is supposed to look like. They don't even need euthanasia to be legal. They're doing it already. Yes, and, and instead of, it's interesting because I think there's a professor, Curlin, from Duke University who made a good point that he says that we should be supporting integrating pain and symptom management to medicine instead of creating a, a form, rival form of palliative care. For example, I went through medical school and residency. Nobody taught me how to take care of symptoms and uh, pain. We were taught to basically treat uh, diseases uh, most of the time. Well, it, I think it would be great to support programs that teach doctors how to treat pain appropriately in people who are disabled and suffering, how to treat nausea, how to treat insomnia, how to treat appetite loss, all these things that, that, that would help those suffering without having to do uh, a training in palliative care or, or, or hospice care, basically, because I think it's combined, and basically just uh, be, have programs that help people die quicker, not necessarily better. Well, I, I could see a lot of, you know, potentially conflicts of interest there with the dying quicker part from an insurance company. Sure, we'll give you all of these things free if you go on hospice because they're going to save money in the long run. Yep, absolutely. Tom, what does uh, the Catholic Church specifically say about the importance of consciousness at the end of life? Right. It's interesting that uh, often... Pope Pius XII, uh, who uh, is quoted uh, in his, uh, uh, from his 1957 address to the uh, Italian, Italian anesthesiologist, and it's often quoted that uh, you can give analgesic that might hasten death if your intent is to relieve pain and not hasten death. However, in that same um, address, uh, the, you know, Pope Pius XII said the following, Without grave reason, the dying person should not be deprived of knowledge or consciousness. When nature does, men must accept it, but they should not do it on their own initiative, unless there is a serious reason for doing so. Such is, on the other hand, the desire of the interested parties themselves when they have faith. They long for the presence of their own, of a friend, of a priest, to help them die well. So preventing that, discuss the Christian and even uh, simply human feelings. The anesthesia used when death is approaching with the sole purpose of avoiding the patient a conscious end would no longer be a remarkable conquest of modern therapy, but a truly deplorable practice. So the Pope basically condemned that, uh, the type of uh, 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 treatment that is provided to patients in the end of life in the United States uh, at this time. That he, most patients, unfortunately, there's a, a, a friend of uh, 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 mine, Dr. Uh, Stephen Pavella, who mentioned uh, he's very experienced in, in uh, working with hospice, and he said that he, uh, priests that he meets complain that they cannot provide, uh, a, a, you know, viaticum or la a communion to patients of their life because most of them are, are sedated to the point that they can't respond or can't uh, e even receive communion. Well, I think that might be one one place where we as the Catholics have a special opportunity to help teach others. You know, from a metaphysical standpoint, we understand that this this death is not the end. There is more to come. And gee whiz, what a blessing it is to have a little foresight so that you can prepare yourself for death. How many of these people are being deprived of it and maybe not even to their knowledge? You know, I, I wonder how many of them would even consent to this. Well, that's interesting because you know, in Holland, where they have legalized euthanasia, there have been studies showing definitely that the large proportion of those patients don't even consent to to being euthanized. So that's where America is leading. At least right now, the decisions made to mainly with patients and families, although they are not, are often greatly misinformed. But I think the the, the idea is to lead to a, a a situation where basic patients won't even be making those decisions. So if we've made by physicians, probably spurred on by the hospital or by, by the insurance companies. What would you recommend to listeners who may have parents or spouses in palliative or hospice care? What should they listen for or look for to make sure they are not getting an anti-life form of care? And this is the, this is a big issue because uh, having uh, dealt with this in the past, um, I have to say I, I ha there's very very few hospice and uh, palliative care organizations that are 
doing this the ethical way. In fact, in my area, in other words, I, I don't know of any. I think uh, I've, I, there's uh, a hospice, Catholic hospice incorporated in South Florida. There's another Catholic hospice in, in near Pittsburgh there's, uh, that, that does it the ethical way, but, but most of them don't. So one question I always ask, would you provide, if someone needs to uh, have a peg tube, uh, or, or assisted feeding, would you provide assisted feeding? Would you provide, um, you know, some of these measures? Unfortunately, sometimes the hospices will lie. They'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll provide it, and then they'll remove it as soon as, uh, you know, one day passes. Um, there's an organization called Illinois uh, Right to Life that uh, on their website they have a nice uh, questionnaire. It's a quite long questionnaire with many, many questions that should be posed to hospice care. And I, I think most hospice uh, uh, care would uh, organizations would probably fail that that questionnaire, uh, unfortunately. Are patients better off being at home? Are they less likely to be abused with opioids and other things if they're at home versus in a facility? I think it's better at home. Just it, 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 well, only if the family is vigilant. Yes, if the family is 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 uh, you know, um, like I said, I was vigilant for my father that I was making sure that he was provided with the right hospice care. So someone has to, and you don't have to be a physician, it just, it, it's mostly common sense in a sense. And, um, and one thing actually I wanted to say is, is um, uh, about this issue, uh, you know, that the Pope brought up and the issue of, of a good death. And I'll just give you an example of a priest, uh, of a homily I once heard about, um, this priest was talking about how his father had died and he was suffering greatly from cancer. And, you know, they provided him with support to help him uh, relieve some of the suffering. But at the end of his, basically the last minutes of his life, he pulled his, the, his wife towards him with the last strength he had. And he, and he told his wife, you know, I, I love you. you know, thank you. I love you. Uh, you know, those type of, that's a beautiful death. And that's what we want to have for our loved ones. And unfortunately, hospice is not providing that uh, for them. So Either. consciousness above all else at the end of life unless absolutely necessary to be unconscious is one thing we should look for in good hospice care. Yes, and like the Pope says, unless nature makes the person unconscious. Right. That's one thing, but we should not, uh, we, we can, I mean, the opiates, it's okay if they provide some level, maybe, you know, some sedation because the patient is in pain at that point, but it doesn't have to be automatic. And if our listeners want to alert their senators about this bill, uh, Senate Bill 693, they can do so and ask them not to vote for it if they fear the same things that you and, and we do. Tom, thank you so much for being with Dr. Doctor today. I think this has been a great service to our listeners. And welcome back to the final segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. When you get that long-awaited-for answer to the medical trivia questions about physician marriages. So the first question was, what percentage of married physicians are married to other physicians? I'm thinking high. I've, my parents are both doctors. They're married. And I, I know a lot of people who are married to other doctors. But not either of us. Not either of us. Our no. co-host, Chris. So the answer is actually 10%. One oh. out of every 10 physicians is married to another physician. Now, what percentage of physicians is married to other medical professionals besides physicians? Hmm, that's a good question. It's going to be higher than 10%, somewhere in the 30 range? Oh, yeah, 31%. So between physicians and other medical professionals, 40%, 41% of physicians in this 2013 Mayo Clinic study are married to other medical people. Now, 12% of the workforce is in healthcare, yet 41% of doctors are married to somebody in healthcare. So this is about three and a half times more likely than by chance. Oh, wow. Why, why would that happen? You know, I think there is something about being in school until you're 30. That <laughs> or longer. There's only, there's only, yeah, or longer. There's only so many people, you know, for people who decide to hold off on getting married, um, there's only so many people who are in the same boat as you. Right. So who do you meet? Other healthcare workers. And then the final question, what percentage of physician spouses work outside the home? Man, that's a toughie. I don't know. Well, uh, the average is 57%, but if your 
a male physician, your wife has a 50-50 chance of working outside the home. But if you are a female physician, your husband will work outside the home 73% of the time, but stay home 27% of the time. Okay. That's pretty interesting. So now you know the answer. Yes. But we have our Lineker for the laity section back again, but with something different today. We decided to bring online a murderer. Yes, the Lineker quarterly editor, Dr. Barbara Golder, who's both a physician and a lawyer, and who should know better about murder, is back. Welcome, Barbara. (laughs) Hey, thanks for having me on. This is great fun. Yes, it, it will be. One of the first things I learned about you when you uh, were chosen as, to be the editor of the Lineker Quarterly was that you wrote something called the Lady Doc Murder Series. How did That's this right. happen? <laughs> well, I think anybody who likes murder mysteries, and I've enjoyed them since I was a kid, uh, believes at some level that that he or she can write them, and certainly I did. <laughs> and I've had, I've had one knocking around in my head for probably 20 years, and a very long and convoluted story made very short. A friend of my husband's is a developmental editor, particularly working with physicians, and she asked if I'd ever thought about writing fiction, and I said, well, kind of, sort of. So she said, send me the first chapter of your book, and so I sat down and wrote it, and she helped pull it out of me, and that's how Lady Doc Lawyer's uh, Lady Doc Lawyer Mysteries was was born. So how long ago did you start this? You, you know, I, it's kind of hard to think back. <laughs> it's been probably, it was probably five years from the beginning of the first book until the first book was published. And then it's been a course of uh, two and a half or three years now that, that um, between the first and the second book. So seven, eight years, something like that. Man, that's incredible. I always wondered kind of how long it took to write a book, but I can imagine it's a long process between, you know, even the initial drafts and how, how rounds of editing and things of that nature. Yeah, r- writing this book took about a year. Rewriting it took about two. Wow. So the the revision process is, is tough, and it, it's kind of, it's an odd sense of vulnerability because you've poured your story into this story, and then you send it off to... And, and not this, not the woman who was helping me, but an, another developmental editor for ideas. And it came back, this is a great book you need to do, and then 34 pages of things changed. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, directed it's help. It's kind of a humbling experience. Yes, it is. Um, you know, on the, the Amazon website for your book, it uh, talked about you being a finalist for the Next Generation Indie Book Awards in 2017 under Christian Fiction. And I love the first sentence. It said, Barbara Golder joins the ranks of Chesterton's bloodthirsty heirs as she spins a tale that will delight mystery fans. Uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, is one of my favorite authors. I've read every one of his Father Brown mysteries. I'm curious, who are your your shining lights, your guides, uh, your inspirations in this genre of writing? Well, I certainly love Chesterton. I love Sherlock Holmes. That's sort of what I cut my teeth on. There's an interesting British writer named Ian Rankin who has written two series of mysteries, the old series, the Inspector Rebus series. I just love because they're, they're beautifully crafted language. They're very complicated stories. There's a lot of psychology and spirituality sort of woven into them, even though they're very secular books. So the, the old Inspector Rebus Mysteries I like very much. His newer series I'm not as fond of. Uh, and there's a series that was written years ago by um, an Anglican woman in Britain, the Brother Cadfile Mysteries. They were actually a, a BBC series. Cadfile's a monk in the 12th century in Wales, yes. and he has been a, um, a crusader, and he's entered the monastery late in life, and He's, he, he solves mysteries in the, in the monastery and surrounding areas. And when she was asked why she chose this particular vehicle, she said that she had some things to say about faith that she had to put into the mouths of a character for whom they would be believable, because a modern character would have difficulty saying these things. And so that's why she chose this monk. Well, that's kind of the model for the Lady Doc series. They're not just mysteries. They're, they're also books about the human spirit, and I had to have a character that would be able to to say and do the things that, that I wanted to 
to tell the human story, not just the, the story of the mystery. So, bringing us up to our next question, that was a beautiful segue, that human character is Dr. Jane Wallace, who bears some semblance to the author. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> funny. Um, the, the first time I gave the first draft of my book to a friend to read, and he hands it back, and he says, well, Jane, is you? And I went, no, she's not. No, she's not. <laughs> and he says, yes, dear, she is. <laughs> Apparently, she is. <laughs> so... Um, but she's she's smarter than I am. She's she's actually more determined than I am. She has six kids. I only have two. Um, <laughs> there, there are some differences, but, but apparently, particularly in the way she talks, I come through. Well, this takes place uh, in Telluride, Colorado, where someone is killing the rich and famous residents there. So why Telluride? Well, we have a, a summer home there. We've lived in Telluride off and on during the summers for probably 20 years now. So it's a really interesting, lovely little town. But it has its, it's, it's kind of a character in its own right in the book because it's this very high-end resort town, you know, skiing and summer activities and multi-million dollar real estate where Oprah Winfrey and Tom Cruise have places. And at the same time, it's filled with all these people who are very um, sort of granola, hippie-type people. So it, it's this kind of this cognitive dissonance going on in Telluride. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like the most capitalistic town in the entire world, maybe. And yet, and yet it has these, these people who, are, who see the world very differently. So there's this, this interesting tension that goes on there. And so it was a place that I knew. It was a small town. Um, so I could I can handle the the physical environment in the book. So it it just seemed like a natural choice. Man, can can you give us any any kind of synopsis of of what we'll be seeing in the book? Well, the first book, Dying for Revenge, um, takes place just after Jane's husband has been murdered. My husband is fond of saying that he get, gets killed off before the book even begins. <laughs> That's not actually true. <laughs> I keep telling him he's not dead, John. Anyway, so she is working through this, and she's mad at God. She's mad at the church. She's mad at the murderer. She's mad at the world, and she has not managed this well. So she comes to Telluride to sort of get away from all of this and then gets dumped into this business of investigating this serial killer. And, and on the course of it, she discovers that she has more in common with this killer than, than she would like to admit. Ooh. So it is the story of her going from revenge through justice to mercy. And it, interestingly, it was, it was uh, released during the year of mercy. Hmm. And it, it was sort of the, the thing that I was going through, not in the same way. I mean, I, clearly I created a, a much more dramatic event for her. But I, at the time, in spiritual direction, I was working through you know, what does forgiveness really look like on the ground? And, and how does it happen to, to a person? How do you come to a point that, that forgiveness is part of your life and what does it look like? And that's really what Jane is working through in this book. So that's kind of the, the subtext story. Now, I understand that Providence played a big role in this uh, series coming to light. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, it did. All sorts of things happened, particularly on Marian feast days. Our Lady has seemed to have <laughs> taken this into account. I signed the contract on um, the Feast of the Assumption, and it was first printed on, I forget what other Marian feast day, because there are so many of them, quite frankly. But many of the milestones have been that way. But the most interesting thing is we were getting ready, my husband and I were getting ready to go to Ireland to research the second book, and we had a visiting monk a Benedictine monk who's a friend of ours who was staying with us. And about two days before we were leaving, I got this phone call from my editor saying, where's your book trailer? And she wanted a video trailer for the book to use for publicity. Uh -huh. And I said, book trailer? What book trailer? <laughs> so I went online and discovered that to get one made was about five grand. Oh. <laughs> and if you did your own, it was really kind of cheesy. And so um, Brother David, who was here, kind of said, well, what do you need? And I told him, and I showed him some examples, and he said, well, I can do that for you. So Steve wow. gave him images from Telluride, and I gave him some script, and this Benedictine monk created the trailer in two or three days. Oh, and my it's goodness. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like, that, outstanding. Okay, I'm, I'm on board with this. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's, been, it's been remarkable that way. All, all kinds of just wonderful little happenstances like that, that that make me believe that maybe there is a a purpose for this series beyond just providing good entertainment. 
And and Barbara, for for our listeners, who would be the best audience for this? What ages would you recommend this book for? I think it's it's probably something at least takes a, a good teenager to read um, because because there's some fairly um, heavy themes. I mean, uh, there's a serial killer and a rape in the first book. Uh, the second book deals with euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, so there's some heavy themes in there. But beyond that, I think it's it's for anybody, Catholics, Protestants, men, women, I have a, a pretty diverse audience. And, and part of the purpose of the books is actually to provide an image of Catholics doing what we do every day, being very earnest and very dedicated in our faith and doing it not all that well sometimes. So it's it's meant to show Catholicism as it looks on the ground, you know, for real people. And so certain Catholic themes come through. And in the beginning of the second book, for instance, one of the things that happens is a, a priest ends up in a hostage situation and he ends up reciting the divine praises. And, you know, and it gets him out of it. Um, Beautiful. So Barbara, in our last 20 things. seconds, what website or place would you recommend listeners go to to get your books? You can go to ladydoclawyer.com or barbaragolderauthor.com. Take you both to the same place, and it'll tell you how to get my books, or you can get them on Amazon. Ladydoclawyer.com. That's you. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, you can find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Doctor. I'm Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, signing off until next time. Remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so please choose wisely and choose Catholic. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll continue our focus on palliative care with Dr. Rafael Rosario, who will share how our Catholic faith and doctrine can help doctors and patients honor the end of every life. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.